We this morning are in Acts chapter 3. Fortunately in the bulletin, it's last week's message that's in there. But Acts chapter 3, as we're moving on through this book now. I read beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes upon him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And so you see this passage begins with Peter and John. These two were close companions. They were often together. We see them running together to the empty tomb. Now they have come together to the temple. They have come not to offer the daily sacrifice because the daily sacrifice has been abolished in Jesus Christ. But they have come to pray. And not just to pray, but also to speak and seek an opportunity to preach about Christ. Something it would seem that the Jews naturally would have interest in since in the time of prayer, it would, be, it would not be absolutely or at all unusual that they would be praying for the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. So they would have that moment and that perhaps on their mind and that would be an opportunity for them to share the truth of Christ. We are told it was the ninth hour, which would be about 3 p.m., Or if you use correct time, 1,500 hours. And it was customary for the Jews to pray three times a day. It wasn't a law of God, but it was an example that was set. Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, prayed three times a day. Psalm 55 and verse 17 speaks of morning, noon, and night. For some folks, it was seen as a duty. But truly, it is a delight. It's a beautiful way to organize the day. I'm afraid there are some for whom not three times a day, but three times a week marks their prayer life. What makes this a bit different Different is that, as I said, there was no command from God to do this. There was no law from Moses that we must pray three times a day. 
nor were there laws about what each prayer should consist of or the perfect number of prayers each day. And it shouldn't take a command to get us to pray. Why would we be prodded and have to be prodded to take part in a grand privilege? Well, how many times Peter and John had come to the temple to do this, we don't know. We know they were there on this day. But in verse 2, we have a man. A man who was lame. He was crippled from birth. It seems like, especially as we see what happens next, that there was something in his feet that kept him from walking. And so he was carried each day to the temple. He was laid at one of the gates of the temple. And for how many years this has gone on, we can't not say, but we do know that this day would be his last. Each day he was laid at a particular gate. A gate that saw more, perhaps, incoming traffic than the other gates did. There's all kinds of speculation about which gate it was the beautiful gate and why it was the beautiful gate. And and some said, well, this is the gate that the women came in so they would be more prone to be generous than the men would be. But for the most part, women wouldn't be carrying money coming into the temple either. But that's a different story. And we can get sidetracked on a lot of uh, side points, but again, it's not given to us here. So we move on to what we do have. The point is we're getting a string of facts pointing to the truth and accuracy of of what the situation was. Why was this man at the gate of the temple? It was due to the fact that a Jew was not to take alms, that is, monetary help, from Gentiles, but only from other Jews. Now, he sees Peter and John entering the gate. And perhaps he notices because he's not seen them before. And so we have the first part, and that is the request. As they enter, he asks for money. He is a beggar, and of course, that's what beggars do. And in verse 4, we see an interesting interchange. The King James has and fastening his eyes on him. The New King James has and fixing his eyes on him. And so what we see here, it's not a usual glance. It is as he's looking upon him, and John also, because we're told with John, as they're looking on him, something is happening. Something's happening within them. There's a movement of God's Spirit within them. They're receiving some impulse from the Spirit of God, but again, we notice that the same thing is happening with John and fixing his eyes on him with John. So both of them are looking at him the same way, with the same idea. So then we have, secondly, the response. 
it is then that it is clear that Peter and John are, are not going to honor his request. He's asking for money. But Peter commands him, look at us. Look at us. And this for a moment raises his expectation. He now raises his head towards them and he's looking like perhaps they're about to reach in and hand him some coins. Maybe, maybe said, look at, look at us because it's going to be a, a large donation. So verse 5 tells us, and he gave heed. He gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And perhaps the last thing on his mind was to be cured of his lameness. I mean, this was just his lot in life. He'd been born that way. Certainly, that's the way he would be for the rest of his life. And you can almost begin to feel his heart to sink when in verse 6, Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have. Silver and gold I have none. Now those eyes of expectation that were looking up towards Peter and John, the moment he hears those words, you can just begin to see them lower in disappointment. Silver and gold have I none. But then there's something else. He hears another sound of hope. Silver and gold I do not have, but but what I do have I give you. A little common three-letter word. Almost as hope has completely disappeared with the idea of saying, silver and gold have I none, but, but, all of a sudden there's a change. Maybe there is something here. But, and when you combine that with another three-letter word, G-O-D, but God, we see great things are revealed. If we look at Romans chapter 5, Romans 5 verse 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Notice verse 8. But God, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or how about Ephesians chapter 2?
Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. In verse 4, But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love, where which He loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This man had hope for money, but God had better things than that for him. So now the third thing we'll see is the regulation. This man is about to be cured, but we note the regulation. Peter does not merely say, rise up and walk, but he points him to the power for which and from which the miracle would come and also to where his praise should go. It also tells us something else. When Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, Peter is making it clear that this is not of his own invention. This is indeed a command of Christ. That God, the Holy Spirit, was speaking to him and John when they fastened their eyes upon this poor, lame beggar. It was clear what the Lord was telling him to do. So in the name of Jesus Christ, under his authority, under his power, under his command, this is going to take place. It's a sad thing to see how much this phrase has come to be misused by false teachers. We really do not do they, that is, really do not do what they do in the name of Christ, but only they use it as some form of incantation. Peter and John are not setting forth a pattern for believers in every generation. This, what is going to take place, is done by two apostles on one occasion led and empowered and commanded by Jesus Christ. He was doing something to whom he chose through chosen vessels. The miracles Jesus did were done in his own name and his own power. Those performed by the apostles were done in the name of Christ and by the power of Christ alone. They were attesting miracles. They were miracles to prove the fact that these men were God's men sent by and empowered by him. Does this mean then 
that we should never seek to heal somebody. And my answer to that would be yes. But that God through our prayers might heal someone. That's the thing. I'm not going to run around with some bottle of holy water sprinkling on people and and trying to punch them in the forehead or do whatever I have to do to get some kind of reaction out of them. I'm not commanded to do that. It's not in the Scripture commanded. I don't know wherever that idea of people lining up and you pop them on the forehead, I don't know where that came from. I'm not commanded to do that, but I am commanded to pray. If you remember a few weeks ago after one of the luncheons, we did a a background on Hansard Knowles. And he had two such instances, if you remember, where he was praying for those who were sick for a period of time and they were healed. But he didn't go over their bed with holy water, sprinkling them and casting out demons or whatever else. He prayed off to the side. You see, we, we, under, we have to understand something. Social media has made a problem that existed even worse. One of these days I'm going to get off Twitter completely. It's just... But you'll have someone who is well-studied, well-grounded... They'll put out a statement, and then it's followed by a comment, usually negative, by some mental pipsqueak who's never studied, but he read an article. And because he read that article, now he's an expert. And this happens over and over and over again. Now, there are people who claim to be experts that are not. Like Dr. Fauci. But there are real and legitimate experts out there. People who have made a lifetime of honest study. And honest study seems to be something that is falling by the wayside. But people think because here's this thread going out in Twitter of of comments and exchanges that they can just enter into and say whatever they want to, whether they're qualified or not. And why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying that because Peter and John spent three years, day and night, with the Lord Jesus Christ. They got an education nobody else had ever had. Jesus blew on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. These men are different. Yeah, they are humans. But they had been specifically called of Christ to their positions. And he had promised that they would do even greater things than he. It's interesting. Sometimes you look and you you have to look at the miracles and think, okay, what is Jesus getting at? I think 
It was interesting. The first miracle that he does is filling water pots with wine. So taking what was not useful at the time because water, for the most part, was not what you want to drink. You're not going to have a plastic bottle with water from the Jordan. At least you wouldn't have to put a label on it because you wouldn't be able to see through it. But that's it's a different thing. But what does he do? He says, empty those water pots. And what does he do? He fills the water pots with wine. Something valuable. And I can't help but think as I look at that miracle, I think of what Christ has done for us, but particularly what he did for the apostles. They were empty vessels. And he filled them with something precious. It is some way a sense of arrogance that some people read the book of Acts and they see what the apostles did and they say, well, we ought to be able to do that too. You know, we, we, we have trouble with distinctions and that's why we constantly bring up the difference of the, the creator-creature distinction. We're creatures. Not the creator. The creator is way different from us. And we have to sometimes understand when we look at scripture, there's a difference, a distinction that is made. The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. God gave them the honor of their position. Christ developed them in that position. And if you wonder how great, we, you know, when we read our confession, when we read the Nicene Creed, we believe in one holy apostolic church. That is a church that is continuing the foundation of what the apostles had set. Building on that foundation, not adding anything new to it. So in Ephesians 2 and verse 20, Paul says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. So people who look and say, well, the apostles are doing that, I can do that too. You're not a foundation stone of the church. The best thing you can do is be a brick in the wall. And of course, the whole thing is held together by Christ. Now, these men, these men weren't perfect, But they were called to be who they were and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a distinction between the apostles and those who would come after them. And so when you see an apostle doing something, perhaps you have to watch it, especially in the book of Acts, because so many of what they're doing is God attesting that they are apostles through what they did. So then the fourth thing we see then is the result. In verse 7, he took him by the right hand, he lifted him up, 
And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. What happened? We said, in the name of, of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now again, you'll notice that they did nothing but speak. They commanded the man. They didn't do any kind of gyrations. It wasn't like the prophets of Baal dancing around saying, oh God, hear us. It was simply this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then, as it would make sense, they took him by the right hand and they arm and they helped him up. Was this part of the healing process? No. He's already healed. He's already healed. That's why they tell him to rise up. Well, certainly they believed he was healed by taking his arm to help him up. What do we know about this man? What's one of the facts given to us right at the beginning? He had never taken a step in his life. He was born lame. Now we ask the question, how many of us started walking without any help? We just one day we're sitting in the floor the next day we're running around the living room. We had to do what? We had to learn to walk. But now this man has Strength in his feet and his ankles that he's never had before, but he's never taken a step before. So it only makes sense that if this is a brand new experience to this man, you've got him by the arm. But what a miracle it was. That he had been so much in this way for so long that even from the womb he was crippled. And then, boom! He's got muscles in his legs. He's got tendons that are now working. Can you imagine if you hadn't used your legs in 20 to 30 years, there's no muscle mass to amount to anything because everything's atrophied. You got muscle mass, whatever you had as a baby, but it never got to increase. In fact, it got smaller. So in that command through Christ, Muscles, tendons, all came into being. Strengthening of the bones. Can you imagine? The bones had not been exercised. And his legs are made normal. He who never walked in just a few seconds would be leaping. And we note what came out of his mouth as this took place, verse 8, he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Praising God. And you know what he did for the first time in his life? He walked into the temple. 
Because as a cripple, he was not allowed to go into the temple. He would always have to stay on the outside. This is another picture of what Christ does to us. We can't enter into the Holy of Holies without him. He opened the way for us. And so in a figure, we've seen the same thing take place. This man who could not of himself and was unclean and unfit to go into the temple now goes into the temple leaping. Verses 9 through 10 tell us that this, those who saw him knew who he was because they saw him daily. The beggar with the bad feet, withered and useless, was now walking and leaping and praising God. And they were, they were filled with wonder and amazement as to what had just happened to him because he'd been so completely cured, so suddenly, in such an extraordinary manner. Well, let me close with three or four uses that we can get from this. First thing would be this. Money doesn't fix everything. He could be financed in his frailty, but his cure was free. The free grace of Christ. Secondly, I would not have you walk out here today thinking that I said, God doesn't heal today. The best we can be is vessels. And that should be honor enough to know that we had been called to pray for this person. Perhaps God heard our prayer. I think sometimes we have numbers of people praying so no one can ever say, well, you know, it was my prayer. Thirdly, God can do and often does far more than we can ask or think. I wonder how much we really believe the love of God. It would be a, have been a mercy to see that under God's providence, this man was provided for by the people. That every day he got more than enough for what he needed to live. But as Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy, did beyond what that man could ask or think. And fourthly, this is a picture of us, of all of us before salvation. Unable to come to Christ, satisfied with what the world would give us, you know, having never walked, he didn't miss walking. It's not like he laid there and said, oh, I can remember those days where I ran with the other boys. But then by grace, those two lovely words, rise up. In the name of Jesus, rise up. You see, every single one of Jesus' healings pointed to a spiritual truth. When John the Baptist from prison sent his messengers to Jesus to ask him if he were truly the one, Jesus replied to go and tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. All of these pointed to spiritual conditions 
before salvation. It's blind, deaf, cripple. You won't come to Christ. Lepers cleansed. Those who were unclean, unfit. Now they would come to Christ because now they were put right and and that's what he does to us. You know, in many ways, simply, salvation is someone put in their right mind. Because to be unsaved and to want to be unsaved is insanity. I want to go to hell. I don't want to have peace with God. I don't want to have eternal life. Those are words of someone who's insane. When Jesus healed that man who was possessed and ran amongst the tombs, they found him the next day. Where was he? In his right mind. In his right mind. And so we thank the Lord for what he does for us. And what he did through the apostles. And we won't see an apostolic day again. Because everything they said has been attested to. But we are not going to see a day of less power from God. For the same power that worked through Christ, that worked through the apostles, is still out there today. That should be our comfort, that should be our peace, and that should be the power behind every prayer that we make. Let's stand together for prayer.